Hey, good morning. Happy Mother's Day again. Don't want to forget that to all you mothers and, and grandmothers. We are glad that you could be here with us. Glad to have baby dedication. It's really good because you get to hear a lot of babies and a lot of screaming parents. I mean, screaming babies and, <laughs> and so forth. Hey, we're going to jump right into the text. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you guys turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 31 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip your hand up. Keep it raised high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Again, just go ahead and keep it raised high. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we are handing out to you that you, um, that you can learn and, and grow and, and the knowledge of God's Word. Since it's Mother's Day, um, it has been somewhat of a tradition of mine, meaning this is the second year I'm going to do this, is... Uh, on Mother's Day to have my introduction to my sermon to, to have something to do with Mother's Day because Mother's Day is just one of those days where it, it matters. And just as a side, Father's Day gets no love. We understand that. Um, most churches do something on Mother's Day. We're going to give you guys pictures and whatnot. On Father's Day, it's like, who are you, right? I mean, like, just no love. But mothers are usually more special in this, this moment. Also, just by observation, Mother's Day, usually more people come to church on Sunday because a mom's like, please come to church with me. Father's Day, no one shows up. <laughs> Dad's like, we're not going to church today, right? So, so hopefully we'll get that We'll get that going the right way. Um, my, my boys and I, we've been talking, and my oldest son is saying, what are we going to do for, for mom for Mother's Day? And I'm like, I'm not going to do anything. She's not my mom. <laughs> She's your mom. You guys better figure this out, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I love her, yeah, but she's your mother. So hopefully you guys have called your mothers and, and we'll talk to them today and, and so forth. But um, so as we, as we begin today, so one of the things I'm always thinking about is, okay, what are some valuable lessons, some things I've learned from my, my mother? And I know not everybody has had the type of mom that I'm, I've had, or maybe you didn't have a good relationship with your mom, or maybe today's a sad day because you've lost your mother. And I want to acknowledge that. I acknowledge that there's extreme highs and there's extreme lows on a day like this. Um, a couple of things that my mom taught me that I would love to share with you um, is, first of all, is that my mom would always say that the family that prays together stays together. My mom taught you guys that too? <laughs> so one of the things my mom would do is she worked, she moved us out of the inner city to the suburbs. She would drive into this inner city every day. And then in California, that's just traffic. And so it's about an hour a day. And so she'd wake us up around 5.45, 6 a.m. to wake up and pray with her. That was the one thing she showed us to do. We held hands and we prayed. We held hands, she prayed. We just tried to stay awake. And um, that in itself was valuable, just valuable just to have just the importance of starting our day off with prayer, and prayer was something that definitely saturated our family, and so that's something I carry into my life today. The second thing is she taught us that you know, in this family, we don't quit, and she said, if you quit now, you'll quit forever. Now, here's the back, back story to this, is in fifth grade, there was this thing at our school called the Honor Choir, right, and I decided to try out for it, which Honor and Choir and then me shouldn't have ever went together. But I did it because some cool kids were doing it, and so I figured I should do it. And somehow they let me be in this choir. And I'm not trying to be, like, humble. I'm being honest. I can't sing, right? And so for whatever, they put me in the choir. I think it had to do with some affirmative action or something like that. (laughs) And so I'm in the choir. (laughs) It's just the reality, guys. It's true. So I'm in this choir, and the thing about it is choir practice was on Wednesday, and like most school districts, that was our early release day. And so all my friends would go hanging out and going swimming and doing a lot of fun stuff, and I'm at choir practice with a bunch of people I don't even like, right? And so one, of the, one day I skipped it, and I knew I was supposed to be there. That day, my mom happened to get off of work early, and I'm riding my da- bike down the street. I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience, where you're somewhere where you're not supposed to be, and you see your mom or your dad, and you're like, 
you might as well just saw the cops, right? And worse than that, right? The warden. Like, this is, this is horrible. Uh, so mom looks at me. She rolls down the window, and she says a little nice way to, like, essentially take your little round home, right? And so I got home, and uh, we, she dealt with me a little bit. And then after that, I said, well, mom, I don't want to be in the choir anymore. I want to quit. And she goes, no, you got to finish to the end. And I remember she's saying, if you quit now, you'll quit forever. If you start quitting now, you'll quit forever. Here's the reality. That's true. If we teach our kids that they can quit things, they'll quit forever. And the reality of it is, that happens as they get older. And one th- I'm so thankful for that because in my marriage, what my mom has instilled in me is you don't quit. With my children, you don't quit. In jobs, anything, you don't quit. You start something and you finish it. I really appreciate that. What I'm trying to say to you mothers is, what you do, it seems insignificant. Sometimes it just seems like you're doing the same thing over and over again because the reality of it is you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, right? And especially with the children in our church and the age of most of these children, not our 7 o'clock service, our actual children, the age, the age of them, it's, it's you are doing a lot of the same things. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're changing them, you're cleaning them, you're potty training them, you're cleaning up after them, and then you're cleaning up after your kids again, then you're cleaning up after your husband, and then you're cleaning up after your kids again. And it's just constantly again and again. And, and sometimes um, as a mother, I can only, as a mother, you as a mother, um, I can only, <laughs> something I've always wanted to tell you guys, <laughs> that it gets, it, it, it gets hard and it becomes mundane. And you know what? With, in our family, I can see my wife oftentimes with our kids, you know, just when they just, draw, just press at her. And, and mothers, you know this. Um, having two boys, too, they just go after each other than they go after my wife. For whatever reason, my boys, when I come into the room, they just become like little soldiers. It's like I can hear them in another room talking smack to my wife. And when I come in and I talk to them like that, you don't talk to my wife like that. Yes, 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 dad. Yes, yes, sir, right? <laughs> but with my wife, they don't treat her like that. And I can just see her being frustrated. Like, how come they do that with you and not me? But here's the deal. What you're doing, it matters. It matters. Here's what I know about my wife, though. As I know, as frustrating as my boys could be to her sometimes, there's something I can do that will make her forget all of that. And my wife's not a person who's super emotional that cries all the time. But there's one book that if I place in her hand and I ask her to read to my boys, she loses it. Whenever she says those words, I'll like you for always, I'll love you forever, as long as I'm living, my baby you will be. <laughs> it's a wrap. It's a wrap, right? And I mean, every, just, just read this book. And, and she just, she can't, she'll start laughing. She goes, I'll like you. <laughs> right? And the boys still don't get it. They're looking at her. They're like, oh, this is the book that makes mommy cry. And it's like, no. This is the book that keeps you alive, right? (laughs) (laughs) They'll think her later. The little things, though, that moms do, they have lasting and enduring effect. I believe that same principle is exactly what Jesus is teaching for us this morning. That when Jesus gives us these two parables that we'll look at here in Matthew 13, he's giving a glimpse into the kingdom and what the kingdom is like. He says, the kingdom... In one sense, he said, it's like a mustard seed. It's, it's seemingly insignificant and small, yet when it grows, it has universal effect. And then the second parable, and we'll explain this in a second, he says the second one is like leaven that you put into bread, and then over time it begins to make that, that batch of bread grow. It's, it's hidden, it, it, it's invisible, and it goes unnoticed. But it grows. He's saying that, and I think that's very similar to what many of our mothers do. Because the reality of it is, our kids, you know, our kids don't wake up and go, hey, hey, mom, this is something I've been wanting to tell you. You have been amazing. 
man, the fact that you let me live in you, one, for nine months, and now I get to live in your house? Thank you, right? None of our kids are saying that. And yet, the way that we do in response to our love of our Father and the love that we receive from our Father and the love that we receive from our King and our Savior, Jesus, and response to that, the way that we do things, it matters. And it's not just mothers, but it's every single one of you who are connected to Christ, who have trusted in the Word and the work of Jesus. And so as we look at the the, um, parable that we have today, actually two parables, there's a few things I want us to see in living in response as kingdom people and respond to the good news of Jesus is one that we'll see that we're agents of provision. We'll explain that. And the second is that we're agents of flourishing. Agents of provision and agents of flourishing. Before we look into the text, would you guys bow your heads and, and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've given us mothers. We thank you that we have moms. And Lord, I pray for those who are hurting, who have lost their mothers, or whatever strife or hard situations they've gone through. God, we pray and lift it to you up, Lord, not just the mothers, but those in whom they mother, for the adopted, for the orphan. God, for the aborted, for the stillborn, and for the miscarried. The pain as well as the glory, the good and the bad, the up and the down. God, we live in the midst of the world where there's great celebration, there's also mourning. And God, we thank you that in Christ, Lord, you took upon it all in yourself. That one day you will fully restore and redeem, and your promise is that you will wipe away every tear, and there will be continuous celebration. And so until then, Lord, help us to rejoice in your son Jesus, rejoice in the work that he's accomplished on our behalf. God, as we look to your scripture today, and as we look to what the kingdom of God is like, would you show us, Lord, by implication what we ought to be like if we are a part of this kingdom? God, we thank you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we begin to look at this, this uh, parable, these two parables, and we look at the provision that we, prov- we provide, and also the flourishing in which we could be a part of, um, we have to do a little bit of framework, a theological framework. And so i got to do a little bit of theology here, and here's why. Oftentimes when we hear the word church and we hear the word kingdom, we use those words or we hear those words synonymously. And they're not the same word. Um, so let's explain the difference. First, the church is the body of Christ. And that is every single person who is trusted in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, who have believed upon him for salvation, who live in him. That's the church. Um, It's a people. It's not a place. Usually we show our bad or communicate our bad theology when we say we go to church, right? We're going to church today. The church is not a place. Oftentimes we think it's it's the four walls, right? You see, we actually screwed you guys in that because we don't have four walls here purposely, right? So you can't be in the four walls of the church. We architecturally, we've, we've, we've designed that, that way, sort of, all right? We think, we think it's a place, but it's a people, and it's anybody who trusts in Christ. There's, there's a church. The church is a part of the kingdom. However, the kingdom is not the church. Here's what I mean. The kingdom is the reign, the sovereign reign of Christ, his lordship, not just over how we become Christians, but his lordship over all of creation of which he himself created, of which we have ruined in sin, of which he himself is going to redeem. That Christ is Lord over all things. He's the Lord of all creation, and therefore it's his kingdom. And so when Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom, he's talking about his entire creation of which he will redeem. And so when we understand that, we have to understand the difference. Now, there's something else in it. Is it's what theologians call, and speaking of the kingdom, they call the already and the not yet. Now, you've heard us say this before, already and not yet. Is that the kingdom of God has come already. That's when Jesus says in the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, meaning it's already come. And in the life of the people who trust in Jesus, 
that the new world that is to come and the power of the new world that, the, that is to come, the trans, this transformative and restorative power of the gospel has broken in through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. And so it's reigning, and the power of Christ is reigning in our life. It's already here. But then it's not yet because there's still brokenness, and there's still decay, and there's still murder, and there's still strife. It's exactly what Tyler talked about last week, that there's good and there's evil simultaneously growing. And so we live in the tension in between the already and the not yet. So the best way to think about this is if you think about reaching back into your junior year history class, is when you learn about World War II, there was two important dates, right? There was D-Day and there was V-E Day. And so D-Day happened in 1944, I believe. I think it was May 6th, because I Googled it this morning. And, and D-Day in itself, we knew, we stormed Normandy, that it was, we were going to win, that Hitler and himself was hosed at that moment. The war was not over yet, though that was a decisive victory. The war wasn't completely o- over, complete victory, until VE Day. And so in that 11 months to a year process, there were still battles that had to go forth, but the war was essentially won. The way that theologians talk about the already is that's the cross and the resurrection of Christ. That there's victory for everyone who's in Christ Jesus. There's still battles, there's still strife, there's still war. And one day when Christ comes back to fully consummate and redeem and restore his creation, that will be VE Day. And when Christ will be Lord and reign over all things. The church and the kingdom are different. The people of God who trusted in Christ, the place, power, and reign of God over people and places. And so, what is the relationship between the two? The church is to be a sign. The church is to be a movie trailer of some sort. The the church is to be an agent of what God is doing in his creation. And so, when you think about a movie trailer, most of you have gone to the movie theater, and when you're there and you've paid your thousand bucks to watch the movie that you're watching— right, whatever movie that is, and there's usually showing trailers to get you to pay even more money to watch another movie, and you make a decision off a little bit of this movie if you're going to watch it or not, so me, if I see anything sci-fi, I'm like, no, I'm not going to watch it, right, if I see anything with Denzel Washington, I'm like, yes, I'm going to watch it, right, and you see a trailer, not the whole movie, but enough to get a glimpse, when the church begins to live our life, every single area of our life for Jesus, when we say all of life is all for Jesus, when we begin to live our life for Christ, in vocation, Um, in recreation, in art, in sports, the way we do family life, the way we do singleness, um, the way we do relationships as a whole. When we live all of our life for Christ, we begin to be somewhat of an imperfect, not perfect, imperfect movie trailer of what it will look like to live under the reign of Christ. And so we are on display for those who do not yet know Christ to be able to look at the life of the church, not just Redemption Church, but all of Christians, and look and go, I would probably participate or I would not participate by how we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus now begins to talk about parables, and he begins to talk to his disciples, and and by, by, by way of them talking to us, we have to understand in light of the kingdom, in light of the big picture of what God is doing, how do we live in response to that? What are the implications of that? And what I said before, it will be, uh, one, we are agents of this kingdom of provision. And then second, agents of provision, uh, excuse me, of flourishing. So first, agents of provision. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the first thing Jesus does is, as often with parables, Jesus uses everyday language and symbols 
to be able to communicate the reality of the kingdom. And so in the particular land that he was at, he said, it's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, and it grows to the biggest tree. Let me pause there for a second, just in case there were some of you plant biology people here who understand that a mustard seed is not necessarily the smallest seed. See, I took plant biology as well. I took it twice, actually. First time didn't really take. (laughs) Second time I got it, right? When Jesus says that it's the smallest seed, he's talking about where he's at. It's not that Jesus doesn't know anything about the seeds. He created it. I think he's got a good firm grasp on it, right? And then when he says that it grows into a tree, it technically grows into a, a branch. Jesus is not necessarily speaking literally here as he is communicating a point. In this particular time, in this particular land, it was proverbial to say that something was small as a mustard seed, it would grow. To give the point of saying something that has seemingly insignificance begins to grow in something that has power and or influence. And so when Jesus says, think of a mustard seed, it's really, really small. Like, I mean, it's really tiny. because this is what the kingdom is like. It's like a man who comes and plants that mustard seed. And over a period of time, that mustard seed grows into a, into a tree or a bush. Now, in, in the Palestine land, the, 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 the bush in itself would grow 8, 10, 12, sometimes even 15 feet. That's a big bush. And he's saying, it grew. And then here's what it did. It served the purpose. It said the birds, they came, and they used the branches, and they made their nest there. Whenever we read about this, the majority of the time when we read about this in the Old Testament, it gives the illusion of God himself when he says through the prophets in the Old Testament and how he's going to restore the world. And now he's going to bring every nation and every tribe under his lordship. And he will be the one who provides for them. He will be their refuge. He would be their care for them. He would care for the least of these. He would care for all nations and all tribes. This universal um, reign of God. And so what Jesus is talking about is as the kingdom grows, it begins to care for not only the people who trust in Christ, but even for those who don't, who may never trust in him, that the kingdom in itself begins to grow to care for them. There's provision there. There's provision there. Now, if you would have been a part of the original audience who heard this, you would have heard this and said, that sounds terrible. Here's why. We don't understand a lot what it's like to be an Israelite, especially in this day, because many of us have not lived in countries. Maybe some of us, but not all of us have not lived in countries or in times where we've been severely oppressed. And when, when, when you have been severely oppressed, you want God to move decisively. Right now, move, hurt everybody who's ever hurt us. Get us out of here. I mean, if you look at the theology of African-American slaves in our country, they weren't singing songs, Lord, keep us here, help us drink some wine, and have a good time. No, right? It was swing low and come carry me out of here, right? That was the theology of a people. Now, when you think about the Israelites, they have been oppressed by the Egyptians. They've been oppressed by the Assyrians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans. I mean, they had just been oppressed. And now they were under, like I said before, the Roman Empire. And when they heard about the Messiah and they read the Old Testament, they knew this Messiah was coming. They knew that God was going to establish a kingdom, but they wanted him to establish it now. They wanted the kingdom to come with political power. They wanted the kingdom to come where Jesus would come with the sword and take everybody out. They wanted the kingdom to be about killing the enemies. And Jesus actually came and said, no, it's not about killing the enemies. It's actually dying for the enemies. They wanted to be about loudness. He goes, no, actually, I come in quiet. They wanted to be big. And he goes, actually, it's kind of small. It's the paradox of the kingdom. They wanted something different. They wanted something bigger. They wanted to make a big bang. You know what? We're, We're not much different. When it comes to the way we would enter into the world, imagine you were God, which you're not, but just imagine you were. How would you enter into this world, right? You wouldn't. 
You wouldn't enter in the way Jesus entered into this world. Like, he is God. He wrote the script. And he chose to come to this teenage girl. Um, he chose to come to Nazareth, right? And what did they say about Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? Like, Nazareth was like, he'll bend. <laughs> like, what's going down there, right? <laughs> Alien hotels, what's going down there, right? And he, he come, literally, Naz, Nazareth this time was like, like the projects. It was like the inner city. Jesus writes the script that he comes from a neighborhood that nobody really wants to live. And, and he, when he comes to be born, he, he, he's not born in like, like the W of Jerusalem, right? He's not born in the NBC suites. He's born in, in the stable inn, right? That's where he, the motel stable is where Jesus is born with all the animals and all the animal smells. And it's just, this is not usually fit for a king. But that's the way he entered in. And, you know, we wouldn't do that. We like big entrances. Like, we like to show off. And especially now. I mean, you, you think about it. You, you look at um, how, I mean, the run of reasons why we didn't have ba- birthday parties for our kids, which we're not saying you shouldn't, is because we didn't want the one-up. And so, like, when our kids finally turned, like, 20, we're like, wow, a cupcake. Hey, man, we pulled it all out for you, buddy. We love you. <laughs> look at that. Frosting, too, right? Because you get one up it. Or think about this, especially now. I mean, in the last few years, it's been all about how you propose to the girl you're going to marry. Right? You hear some of these stories? Like, they're exhausting. Like a guy, like, well, this is how I did it. So what I, first what I did was, I know she loved Jesus. I flew to Jerusalem. I got some dirt that he may have walked on. <laughs> I kept it. I flew back. And then we used to go to this particular restaurant. I found out the chef died. I dug him up from the grave, <laughs> brought him back. Made him fix some herbs. Like, goodness, I'm, I'm exhausted, right? It used to be, do you want to marry me, right? Now it's like a novel, chapter one, right? We love these big entrances. And, and, and Jesus is like, no, not the kingdom. Not the way I'm going to bring in the kingdom. Jesus, for 30 years, doesn't say anything. Think about that. For 30 years, no one knows he's the king. He's got brothers and sisters. He's got a mother. He's got a father. He, he's growing up in the town. People are probably making fun of him. He could just be like, done, not in the book anymore, right? He just kind of just, just stays low-key, about 30-something of age. He says, oh, yeah, by the way, the kingdom of God is here. I'm the son of God. No one even notices. Just a, a humble appearance, a humble entrance. And, and when the first audience would have heard this, they'd have said, no, we don't want it that way. But Jesus said, this is how it is. Things that we do may seem insignificant. When we do it in response and in the way that our king calls us to do it, it matters. It doesn't just matter as you as a mother, which we know as mothers, and today's your day, you, you guys are the best at this. Of doing the same thing again and again and again and again and again. And you're hearing one mother says, I feel like I do the same thing over and over again. It's like, because you do. You do. But it matters what you're going to do tomorrow for work, what you're going to do tomorrow for school, those of you guys who are in school, those of you guys who graduated, congratulations, hopefully you'll get a job. And then when you go to work, <sighs> you're probably going to do the same thing again and again and again. When we understand that we are a part of this kingdom by repentance and faith in Jesus, that we are wrapped into the family of God, we've talked about that, that we are adopted into his family, this family has a business. And that our Father himself is in the process and has the plan and the power to redeem this world, to redeem all things. And when we say we want to live all of life off for Jesus, we do so in the power and the strength to bring glory to God under the lordship and reign of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit in the most mundane things. 
that we too become agents of provision. In the same way that the mustard seed grows into this tree that provides for others. That we too now in response to that, that we join in what our Father is doing. That we join in what our, our Savior, what our King, Jesus is doing. That you realize that the church is the only institution that exists not only for its own members, but for those who would never even become members. That we're not just here to just kind of high-five each other and have a three to five minute chat greeting time and then just kind of go into our lives and just huddle up together and never talk about Christ and never live for Christ and the vocations that we have and the neighborhoods that we live. That we are called to use the very ordinary things that we have to provide for others. And so when it comes to us being agents of provision, Here's a simple way to think about it. It's about our postures. And here's the posture that, for that. It's the posture of love in the, in the most mundane things. A posture of love in the mundane. And when I say love, it's the love that we see in our Savior. It is a selfless, sacrificial love of you denying yourself and giving yourself for somebody else. And the reason why I say mundane, because naturally, we're going to provide. Yeah, we'll be agents of provision. What we'll do, we'll start a hospital. We'll start a shelter. No, you're not. It already started, right? How about you just do what God's already called you to do and you do it with faithfulness? You do it in such a way that brings him glory. Whatever job you have, whatever family you're in, whatever hobbies you have, that you do it in such a way that you begin to care for others. There's, there's probably very few vocations that I can think about that are not uh, vocations that provide for somebody else. You provide some sort of service in the industry that you run or the industry that you're a part of. If you are in a particular industry where you're looking at and going, the services we provide are not good, right? Um, you could see those industries usually up and down Apache and Scottsdale Road. Quit, right? You, you probably shouldn't work there. But most everybody else, there's probably some industry, there's an industry you're in that what you do the industry in itself, not just how you do it, but you, you work for something that provides for society. Do it in a way that honors your king. Do it in a way that though it may seem insignificant, no one's looking at you and looking at the way you work and go, wow, there's the kingdom. I see it. There, no, not at all. They probably won't even know your name. It's totally okay, especially if you're following the king. He didn't care. He didn't care because he knew the bigger picture which he was a part of. If we understand the bigger picture which we've been wrapped into, we would understand that. No matter what the industry may be, and you say, well, my industry is not like yours, Ricardo. It's easy for you to say that because you're a pastor, and pastors never sin. That's true. <laughs> Nowhere is that true. No, everything you do. Is there going to be tension? Yes, there's tension in every vocation. That's what, that's what God told Adam. He goes, when you work, work is still a good thing. It's just tainted by sin. There's going to be pushback. It's like the biology teacher. The 10th grade biology teacher, uh, she wants to teach it. She's a believer in God. Every, every time that year comes around, the point of the year where she has to teach evolution that something else created this world other than God. That's hard. That's a tension. It happens with any business that you're in. It happens in any a field that you're in that there's going to be tension because this world is still broken. It's what Tyler talked about last week. There's good and there's evil. There really is. But we live in such a way that we say, Lord, how can I do what I do to provide care for people around me? How do I do what I do to provide care and be, have a provision for the people in my own family, for the people in my neighborhood, for the people in my community, for the people who have a vertical relationship with you in the name of Christ, and for those who don't, to care for them. How do I take the resources and the talents and the gifts that have been given to me, invested in me by God, to showcase, to be a sign, to be an agent, to be somewhat of a movie trailer of the kingdom around me? I think what's hard for us is we don't like doing the same things again and again and again. And many of us look at our vocation and go, it's not that exciting. Or I don't see the Christian value in it. 
I don't see how God cares about it. God cares about winning souls. It seems to me in the Bible that God cares about winning souls as well as redeeming places. And that's the industry of all of us. So we're all in full-time vocational ministry. It just depends on where God routes your check. Some of you, you route your check through the church. Some of you guys, you route your checks through Starbucks. Some of it is through another industry. Some of it, we said before, it's through your parents, and hopefully you're weaning yourself off of that. Um, but wherever you're at. And th- there's this quote that I love, and I've shared it before, about thinking about monotony and how God himself can, can be praised in it. And he talks about, G.K. Chesterton writes this quote, um, and he talks about children and how they can delight in monotony. And he says this, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. And they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> right? True? You're doing all types of silly stuff for these kids. And he says this. For, the gro- for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all da- daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Think about that. Someone who's been here for all eternity, who created everything, every day going, do it again, do it again. Some of you, that is your job. You know exactly what you're going to do when you get in the office. There's a button you're going to press. There's a chair you're going to sit in. There's something you're going to do. The time's going to click. You're going to get lunch. You're going to come back. I mean, do it again. It's not about necessarily just how you do it, too. It's not even necessarily completely about what you do, but whom you do it for. When you understand that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, it's, it's seemingly insignificant. There's not a lot of pats in the back, but it grows and it provides. When you understand that you are a part of that kingdom, and you understand what Christ has done for you and how he has served you, through his blood, when you understand his selfless, sacrificial love, then our posture and whatever we do, our posture, do we make money through it? Absolutely. Do we care and provide for our family through it? Absolutely. But there's a way in which we're doing it and trusting in the redeeming work of God in and through us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we have a posture of love in the monotony that begins to glorify God in everything we do. Amen? It would be great to be a people that didn't need all the glitz and glamour, can just do what we're supposed to do in obedience to our Savior, following that that's exactly the type of, ser- that's, a type of that's a type of king we serve. That he wasn't about him. That it was about others. So when Jesus says, it's like a mustard seed. It's going to grow. It's going to flourish. It's God himself who's empowering it. We live in response to that in the daily activities, in the daily things we do, finding our significance in Jesus. And in response to Jesus, we do those things. The second point that we have here um, is not only are we agents of provision through the daily things, but we're also agents of flourishing. Here's the second parable. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, I had to do some research on leaven because I've been reading the Bible for a while now, and I still am like, what is leaven, right? I understand now. Leaven in itself is uh, a woman um, or a man, let's just be real, a woman or a man would take, would take um, from a baked piece of, I don't understand it as much as I thought I did, <laughs> would take, would take this, this dough from uh, a, a baked bread, keep the leaven, 
hold on to it, and then would take unleavened bread, and would put, would put the leavened part in the unleavened bread, and when the unleavened bread that had the leavened bread in it, you following with me? And then would put it into what would be an oven of that day, and when the bread would rise because of the leaven, okay? Here's what it means. The bread wouldn't have had the opportunity to rise if it wasn't for the leaven that was placed in it. And leavened bread, and ri- bread that rises takes way, tastes way better than unleavened bread. It wasn't nearly that hard last hour. So you get it, right? <laughs> the kingdom of God is like, Jesus, let's think of another one, right? Leaven bread. And so, but what you have here is this picture of it growing. And it wouldn't have grown if it wasn't for the leaven. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is like that. You don't see it. it, it it's invisible. It's here by its spirit. It, it, it's in the people who trust Christ. It's in the things that we do. And sometimes what we do looks no different from the people who actually don't love Jesus. And so you can't measure it on that. He's just saying, it seems like it's not even there, but it's here. And over time, when it's placed, it begins to permeate. That means when believers of Christ, those who are part of the church, that we find ourselves in God's places, scattered in different vocations and jobs and, and industries that we find ourselves in, different neighborhoods and communities, different states, different parts of the world, that when we're there long enough in the gospel in itself, fueling our motivation and desires and the way that we do things, that it begins to grow. Another way to think about this is when Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, you know what you're supposed to be like? You're supposed to be salt and light. And usually what happens is you hear someone say, you know what salt's like, right? The church should add flavor to the culture. And it's like, no, that's usually like a 20-something pastor making a hip statement or something. I said that when I was 28, but now I'm older now. I'm 31. I'm like, gray hairs and everything, right? Salt in that day was not necessarily, for the most part, used for flavor. It was used to preserve things. Things that would be good if they only could be preserved. God created a world. And he said it's good. Sin has tainted it. And it's tainted not only just our bodies, not only just our souls, not just our thoughts and our faculties, but the things that are around us, the created things, things that we participate in. And Jesus says, you're supposed to be salt to those things that were good. And you're supposed to preserve them in whatever way that you can. And we understand light. Light lights up a dark room that people can see. We ourselves, guys, we are not the light. We just reflect them. We reflect Jesus. We reflect them with our hands, we reflect them in our eyes, with our thoughts, with our words, the way we care for people, the way we steward our resources, the way that we're generous with our finances, the way we're generous with our time, the way we befriend people, the way that we, the, the way that we, we care for the poor, the way that we reach out for people, whatever it is that we do, we are reflecting the light of Christ, not just in word, not minus the word, but also in deed. And so when Jesus says that we are, we are leaven, he's saying what we are, we are invisible in this world. For the most part, people say Christians should look different. No. You know what that's led to? It's led to Christians looking weird on purpose. Because we hear, we got to be different. Okay, what should we do? I know what we do. We'll be really weird, right? That's never won anybody to Jesus. Right? No. Just be who you are. God has made us all different. And it should be that when we walk out into the community around us and we go to different places where you guys will go to eat today for Mother's Day, that people shouldn't go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can tell them they're Christians. Why? Look how weird they are, right? No. The way that we shed this light, the way that we show the preserved things, the way that we are like leaven is that the gospel is in us. And over a period of time, we begin to see growth. And this is not just numerically. This is not to grow the church. No, 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 no. This is the kingdom. A lot of times what we have is we have vision and plans for our church. No. As redemption, this is what we want for our church. We want to be a blessing to the people who are part of God's church and also the people who are not. That means our time, our energy, our resources are for that. 
that every single pastor here, that we do weddings for those who love Jesus and those who do not even know Jesus. We want to use whatever services that we have to be able to bless people. In fact, most of the organizations that use the, 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 the building here that we all purchase are not even Christian. They're schools and they're, they're things for autistic foundation. They're after-school programs. They're things that we can say, how can we bless the community around us? Because God has given us so much, not just materially, but in Christ Jesus. We're like the leaven because God says when it's put in there, it rises. So we, in response to that, we look to see as agents of flourishing. How do we see the community around us flourish? How do, we, how do we begin to see what God is doing? First of all, we have to understand the bigger picture of which we are part of. You know what we do as, as, as Christians for the most part? We take Matthew on over and we read that to Revelation, to about first three or four chapters of Revelation, then we go, <laughs> I don't know what that means, right? That's what, that's what we usually do. There's a, you know, there's this whole other side of the Bible, right? It's called the Old Testament. And what you see when you begin to read from Genesis all the way to Revelation is you actually begin to see God's big picture for this, crea- this world that he created and how he's redeeming and what was his plan. And, and Hebrew people, they got this because you know what? They knew when God was going to restore all things, they believed in it. They believed that it was going to be shalom. They knew that's what God was up to in his kingdom. Not just saving souls. We have reduced the gospel to basically being believing in Jesus, being born again, holding on to your born-again stick until he comes back. That's it. When, when, when you would understand the gospel being preached in the Old Testament, it was far more comprehensive than that, far more holistic than that. It was that God was going to redeem us spiritually and physically, but he also was going to redeem creation. And so they hoped and they looked for the day of shalom. And we used that word before, and we've said before that shalom is translated the word peace that we have, and peace in itself is far too weak of a word because peace usually means just we're just cool with each other, we're not fighting in each other, daps and hugs, and like, we're cool, right? Shalom means far more than that. There's a very good book on sin, one of the best books I've ever read on sin by Cornelius Plantinga Jr., and it's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in this book, he begins to describe shalom and what the Hebrew prophet spoke about. Our God is a patient God. I don't know why you guys are not. Uh, Here's what he says. The webbing together of God and humans and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In English, we call it peace, but it means far more than just peace. Whoa. (laughs) Far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire or between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. That's what God's doing. When we understand that, we are, that when he's restoring his kingdom and we play a part in that, then we see what talents do we have what time do we have? What vocations do we have? Um, where do we live? Where has God called us sovereignly? I believe that God has sovereignly placed every single person where they're supposed to be to know him and then to live for him. To love God and to love their neighbor. If we just do the simple things that God has called us to do, love God, love your neighbor. You know when Jesus said that and he shared this story because some guy was testing him and said, well, who's my neighbor? And he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. And he basically tells a story of two people who would never like each other and one person who begins to love the other person. And he, and he tells the guy, he asks him a question, he goes, go and do likewise. What he's saying is, live like me. And so the posture that we have here, at first, to be agents of provision, is a posture of love in the mundane. The second one, to be agents of flourishing, here's what it means. 
It doesn't have a posture of service in broken times with broken people and broken places. It is a posture of service, to be a servant in broken times with broken people and broken places. If you want to understand the kingdom, you have to really understand the king, right? Because the kingdom is going to be like the king. And when you begin to look at Jesus, definitely you see his selfless, sacrificial love. But you always begin to see about Jesus, too, is that Jesus himself was a servant. In fact, in the Gospels, he says the Son of Man did not come to be served. He goes, he came to be a servant, to give himself, to lay down his life. And so when we understand the gospel vertically, right, when we understand that we've been justified, a word we've been talking about for a while, that we've been made right by faith through grace, that doesn't just stand here vertically. It has to bleed into our lives and what we do, that we are empowered of the Spirit, that obedience in itself, it flows in caring and loving God and loving our neighbors, especially, especially those who are under-resourced, those who are living on the margins, those who are the least of these in our community around us. And hear me, you don't have to go to another country. However, if you are called, we want to send you. You don't have to go to another country. Walk around your neighborhood. Get a bike. Just ride around. And you'll begin to see areas that we don't fancy, areas that we don't talk about, areas that are not quote-unquote hip or cool. And those places have people who are in need not only of the preaching of the gospel, but the demonstration of the gospel and so that there may be flourishing. But when we see Jesus doing these things, Jesus wasn't just doing these things as an example. He was saying, this is what it should be like. That when we see sin and we see decay and we see brokenness, that we as the people of God who are salt and who are light, we begin to enter in in whatever things that we have. I mean, take this. We have a particular church that has a lot of artists, and they're good at what they do. And one of the guys who I love, one of my favorite theologians is a man by the name of Ray Bakke, and he did inner city ministry in Chicago for 40 years. And one of the things he talked about is how every church in the inner city, and anywhere, he said, should have um, an art committee. And someone challenged him, saying, why would you want an art committee? Why would you need an art committee? He goes, because the poor need food. or excuse, they, they need beauty as much as they need food. Because they see so much brokenness. And he began to describe about how, what, what that could do for people and what it did in his community. That means whatever time you have that you begin to serve other people, you serve people in your church, and you serve people in your community. And some of you are going, that sounds exhausting. I don't have that much time, mainly because we're too busy people. We were very, very busy people. And some of the things we're doing, we're just being busy bodies and not busy servants. In light of, our, in light, in light of Jesus, we stand over here and go, I am saved. I may give some money to the church, but I'm not going to get messy Jesus put on flesh in order for his body to be broken. Not only to redeem us, but to give us a picture of what it looks like to live for him. He says the kingdom of God, it's like leaven. When it goes into the middle, over time, it begins to permeate everything else around it. You know what that means? It means living in communities for a longer period of time. It means taking your kids to particular schools that maybe most people don't want to go to and joining in those schools in order that other families may be able to provide. Now, I'm not telling you what to do education-wise with your kids. I'm saying it just could be. I'm not saying you have to hear me that, but it could be. You know, you, you know if you look at the history of America here, you know what we've done in America? No joke, as Christians. It has been a history for years where everyone has fled from the city to move what is called the suburbs. You know why? Because the suburbs have good things. They have good schools. They have good places to go to. They all look alike, but the, you could find it, right? You could see it. It's been a history. Now, all of a sudden, everywhere, everybody's moving the cities. But you know who's not moving the cities? Christians. Christians. And by no means am I saying Tempe's a, a big metropolitan city. I'd like to think that, but it's not. But it's close. 
but it's not, right? It's already, but not yet, right? <laughs> but, but one of the things that, that absolutely pains me is how we see elementary schools closed down. And then when you go about 15 miles, 15 miles, 15 minutes east of here or west of here, they're blowing up. And it's because young families go, we don't want to raise our kids here. And it's like, why not? What if Christians were the ones who said, no, this is a great place to raise kids? Just saying, just one place. Um, another way to think about this is what you do and how you do it, and you do it in a way that glorifies God that's flourishing there. It may seem insignificant. Let me show you a story about a guy by the name of Dan Ray. Dan Ray was my Spanish teacher for, um, for my freshman year for Spanish 1 and my sophomore year for Spanish 1. <laughs> There's a consistent theme here. <laughs> and so this is, this is in high school. And um, me and my friend, we didn't do well the first time we took, we, we took his class. And my buddy didn't want to go to sign up to be in his class again because it was embarrassing. They like, oh, we're back again. But I did. And the reason why I did is because he was just a good teacher. He was just a good guy. It was something about him that we always wanted to be around him. The girls wanted to be around him because he was a young teacher and they all thought he was attractive. We wanted to be around him because he was just a good dude. He would like, re- he was a nerd. Like he would read these chicken soup for the teenage soul books. So it had nothing to do with Spanish, right? But he was, the way he cared for us was amazing. I never knew if he was a Christian, nor did I care, but I knew that he, there was something about him that was unique. Years later, when I became a Christian, I'd, I'd gone to a church, and I'd been at this church for a little bit of time, and I was there singing, praising the Lord loud in the Jesus' name, right? And then I look over, and I'm like, that looks like Senor Ray. And uh, it was Senor Ray. <laughs> he doesn't teach Spanish anymore, but he actually teaches at Mount Point High School. And he was a Christian. And I went up to him like, hey, do you remember me? I had your class for two years. <laughs> Spanish one. I said, me llamo Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he totally remembered. And, uh, man, he had an impact on my life. As little as that is, he had an impact in my life. When I was in college majoring in education, you had to pick two teachers that you would write a letter about. And he was a teacher that I wrote. He was one of the teachers that I wrote a letter about. Meaning, if I can teach like Mr. Ray, I would be thankful for that. That's just something small. Jesus is saying, you don't need to make a splash. You don't need to do anything that's going to win you an award. Which, by the way, he did win the Teacher of the Year Award in Arizona a couple weeks ago. You probably won't. You don't have to. (laughs) A couple years ago, I did. Um, you don't have to, but it's, it's the insignificant things or the seemingly insignificant things that our God begins to bless. Whatever talents, whatever things you have, that you begin to use those things for God's glory. Let, 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 me, let me finish with this, because I have to do this. Because I know we have different groups of people constantly here at church. When it comes to this sort of living, and it comes to a sermon like this that seems a lot of doing, and a lot of social activity, some of us who grew up in more liberal churches were like, yes. Because we look, we look at Jesus and we love him ministering to the prostitutes. We, we love him ministering to the least of these. We love all of it. We love it. But oftentimes what we miss is just the obedience and faith and the blood of Christ on our behalf. The word of God and saying, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus because he first loved me. And that's not the kingdom when you don't get both. On the flip side, some of us who grew up in more conservative churches... We love the word of God. We love doctrine. We love theology. We love it. We understand the vertical relationship. I was saved by his blood, by faith, through grace, nothing else. I understand it. I am justified. But it doesn't spill out into your life. People who you hang out with look just like you. People who you hang out with, they vote just like you. They speak the same language you do. They don't have the same. It doesn't bleed out to you. You don't see it. You know what? That's not living the kingdom either. When Jesus comes in this world, he doesn't split it in categories. Jesus doesn't come to pick sides. When Jesus comes, he comes to take over. 
And there's no way you can separate the social implications from the gospel from the spiritual implications of the gospel. There's no way in our life that we can look at certain vocations and say they're more spiritual because of they get to use the name of Jesus and some are not. No, God is sovereign and overall. We understand the vertical relationship that we've been united to God through Christ. And that understanding begins to fuel what we do socially. It begins to fuel what God says to love him and love our neighbor. People say that's all we're supposed to do. I cannot love my neighbor in non-social ways. Meaning if my neighbor is thirsty, it is my responsibility because I'm a Christian to give him a drink. If my neighbor is naked, I need to give him clothes. If my neighbor doesn't have access to education, I need to provide those things. You know why? Because in Christ, God provided all those things for me. So my, my thing is, is we see mustard seed grow into a tree. As we see leaven that grows into this big batch of bread that provides, that it flourishes, that provides provision. If we are Christians in response to Jesus, we never will separate the doctrine of Christ Jesus and salvation from the practice of it. They go together. They're two wings to the same plane. Amen? And I would just wonder, imagine, what would it look like if Christians did that? Not just Redemption Church, just Christians. What if we took that serious? What if we didn't reduce the gospel to only individualism, but we understand the implications in every area of life? You know what we'd look like? I think we begin to look like what the true Christians look like, the early church look like, and what they did in the culture around them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this quote from Rodney Stark, who wrote an amazing book called The Rise of Christianity. He talks about what Christians did in response to the fullness of the gospel. He says this, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. All, all, because they saw both the vertical and the horizontal. They knew God himself was restoring his kingdom, not us, but we are a part of it by faith in Jesus. It is our prayer, and I pray your prayer, that we would be a church that would not only exist for our own selves, but for his kingdom, the implications of the kingdom, empowered by the gospel. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you are the one who is establishing and restoring your kingdom. If we read over the past two weeks that the way that the kingdom begins is by the planning of the gospel in our lives, Lord, and you've done that, you've watered it, and you've got the increase. God, we also know that there's no way that we could be planted and not bear fruit. And the fruit that we bear, Lord, in love and peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that these things are not just done into ourselves and not just done into the church in itself, but, Lord, it's a witnessing in what we do and what we say proclaiming faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ and the need of repentance and faith, all while, Lord, handing out a cup of water and caring for our neighbors, using the talents and the gifts and the resources that you've given us to serve not only the body of Christ at this particular church, but the cities in which you've placed us in. God, that you would give us the heart that you have, the picture that you have in redeeming your world. God, we are thankful to be included into your project by grace, your plan by grace, your redeeming work by grace. And we pray that this grace in itself would not end in ourselves, Lord, but be extended to those in our family, those in our offices, and those in our neighborhoods. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.